Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and PCB part placement experts. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 332. So before we kick this thing off, go to, if you're looking for a job just out of college, macfab.com slash jobs. Apply now. We want you. So a couple months ago, uh, we were talking about USB Type-C. Uh, we're On this podcast, we're quite a fan of that connector. Um, but uh, a couple months ago, the EU um, was thinking about making it mandatory for phones and devices uh, to standardize just charging everywhere, right? Kind of like what they did with the micro USB um, for cell phones back in the day. Um, well, it has been decreed uh, in Europe by autumn 2024, you have to have your device has to be charged by USB type C. Which, which, uh, frankly, that's probably going to mean that it's USB type C everywhere. They're not going to sell two different variants of it. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're saying like uh, they, they mandate it, everyone it, it follows it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so this rule applies to electronic devices such as tablets, digital cameras, headphones, handheld video game consoles, and e-readers, um, and laptops. Well, laptops have to comply at a later date, and it doesn't specify what that later date is. Oh, that's interesting. So laptop power will now be over uh, Type-C? Yeah, so that that was what was interesting is I thought the same thing. And I'm like, well, I have a laptop that is over 100 watts on the charger. And so you can't use Type-C. And so I looked it up and lo and behold, earlier, or I think it was like mid last year, and we just missed the announcement, is uh, USB uh, came out with the extended power range or EPR. So you can do 240 watts over the, same, uh, over the power connector. <laughs> Holy crap. And how they do that is through uh, more voltage. So it's still five amps but they're going from 20 volts to 48 volts. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I see 28 volts, 36 volts, and 48 volts that enable up to 140, 180, and 240 watts. Yes. Now, one that thing I looked up, or I, I say looked up, uh, forgot to look up, was do the, is there any con USB Type-C connectors out there that can handle that voltage? That okay, so that was going through my mind as well. Like, the, to be able to ha handle 240 watts across, you know, your PCB traces, there's gonna have to be some pretty hefty standards. Like, you don't want to just be doing anything there, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, I'm curious if there's gonna be some solid uh, reference designs that we could look at for this. I mean, it's not it's not terribly hard to to get. Uh, to figure it out, but at the same time, five amps on a PCB trace is pretty hefty, uh, especially with USB Type C pins. Um, I guess there's a lot of parallel power pins on those, right? Uh, not as many as you think. Hmm. Uh, how many pins is it? Is it twenty pins on a USB? Twenty-four. Twenty-four. Oh, now I don't have it memorized. I want to look it up. Let's see here. 
four ground pins I'm seeing, uh, and four bus, uh, V bus pins. But I guess only two, only half of that's active at once, right? Because it's reversible. Uh, no, you can use all of it because it is reversible. So you can use all four of those lines. Oh, oh, my bad. Yeah, no, no, I see what you're getting. Okay, so yeah, like uh, uh, an amp and a quarter per pin <laughs> mm -hmm. at 48 volts. So we'll see how this turns out. But um, it's interesting that they waited this long for that standard to come out for USB Type-C. And it might have been like 20 volts was like a safe bet. And then they saw how, you know, it worked out in the field through, you know, a couple million devices. And they're like, okay, we can probably handle 48 volts uh, through that connector as well. Hmm. Well, I'm sure they, yeah, I'm sure they wanted to standardize on something that has been proven. And there's a lot of devices that are using C now. So basically all cell phones are going to be moving to type C. If they're not already. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, to my knowledge, Apple's the only one that isn't doing Type C at the moment, because uh, they're still on. They're doing Lightning, right? Uh, yes. But they will have to do Type C now. All right. Well, cool. Which actually is kind of sh the the shame on that is laptops, because a MacBook is a laptop, and they won't be able to use their mag connector anymore. Well. Could they, though? Could they use some kind of Type-C mag connect? Like, redevelop a new one that still fits within Type-C, you know? Uh, probably not. I don't see that working. Because you won't be able to plug any USB Type-C into it to charge. Well, not I say any. Any charge-compatible one, right? Well, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm getting at. Perhaps they make some kind of a connector that allows for standard Type-C to plug in, but then oh, they also have also be theirs. Yeah. I actually, I so. that, that brings up another point. Can you get around this mandate by having a Type-C that works and then your other thing as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, as long as it works one way, I don't see why you couldn't have as many power plugs as you wanted on it. Right. So, I mean, that would allow Apple to continue using Lightning if they just also have a Type-C on there for charging. I'm pretty sure Apple's kind of gotten rid of um, lightning as like the peripherals on their laptops though. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not much of an Apple guy. I don't keep up with them. Yep. I was looking at a couple data sheets for USB Type-C connectors on Mauser and most of them are rated at 20 volt DC. So I don't really see one that can handle 48 yet. But of course, I'm just clicking one by one and scrolling through the data sheet looking for the test data. At Actually, the same the, time, the funny thing is, most don't even say uh, what voltage they are at. They just say an amperage. Well, but but previously, like uh, when USB Type C launched, like 20 volts was the max. So I wonder if the connector manufacturers were just saying, like, oh, well, then 24 is, or 20 is our max. Yeah, that could be it. And maybe it'll change once uh, there's a bit more of this extended power range out there. Mm -hmm. When does that yeah, all we go find into a, effect? Um, we gotta find a paper that has the a uh, a uh, sample diagram of what this layout should look like. 
Especially if it's a 24 pin, like trying to escape all that and also trying to escape all that power. Exactly. That's got to be tough. No, okay, so according to USB.org, uh, they say the power delivery revision 3.1 spec is a major update to enable delivering up to 240 watts of power. And here's where they say it, over full-featured USB cables and connectors. So I wondered what full-featured means, if that's like a unique connector. Oh, no, it's... Um the cables themselves have a little bit of electronics in it to let the device know that it's a cable that can handle that much power. Right, right. They have to say, like, I can do this. But they also say full-featured connector, and I wonder if there's something oh. unique about that as well. It's probably one that actually just meets that spec. Right. 240 watts is a lot of power through a little cable like that. I think that. that's the size of your, your pinky fingernail. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, interesting. We should, if anyone out there has a reference diagram or reference uh, layout for something that does 240 watts, because I remember 100 watt being really hard to do on USB Type C. Because we uh, were talking about like doing a 100 watt uh, soldering iron over USB yeah. C. 240 is like soldering gun station like area. <laughs> yeah. Because I think my old, I have a Weller D550. And it's a it's a dual like two hundred and fifty watt and then five hundred watt like gun. Thing's awesome. That's what I do all my automotive soldering with. Was it you or was it uh, my buddy? I think it was my buddy, also named Stephen, who had the soldering gun that was actually like shaped as a revolver. With that's a, no, that's me. That was you. Okay, yeah. yeah I thought I. Yeah, thought it has the two Stephen lights Lita. on the front. Yeah, yeah. That thing was legit. <laughs> yeah, I like that thing a lot. Um, those are my grandfather's. This is one of the things I got to inherit. <laughs> okay, um, so last week we were talking about this stencil problem I was having. And uh, we're like, it was acting like the stencil was like stretching or something weird was going on. Right, because well, you, you were getting misprints, right? On, uh, on misprints on one... Occasionally getting misprints and it ended up being a third the panels were being misprinted. Um, what ended up happening is the panels have poor copper registration on them. Really? Yeah. Like, so how a, I think enough enough uh, like enough to be like a full like half pad off. Yeah, whole point two millimeters off. Wow, that's actually and, uh, significant. Yeah, when you talk about the. The part was a micro BGA, which has a pitch of 0.4. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so half half a pitch off. Um, and how I figured that out was um, I was like, well, I don't really have an easy way to like, you can't really like caliper that. Yeah, like, it's pretty tough. Accurately. Like what but do you I'm caliper like, off of? What's your reference? Yeah, what's your reference? And like, how do you keep it square? Well, I'm like, well, I have a pick and place machine that's square and places these parts even smaller parts oh yeah so, it has a tolerance of way better than 0.2 <laughs> yeah way better than 0.2 and so i actually put in a a board that's printed fine and i manually programmed in like the fiducials and then the locations of these parts over the entire board then i put a bad board in and i was able to basically 
drive over it. And I'm like, okay, the ones that are closest to the FID are, are the fiducials are, are within spec. It's, it was like, like barely, you couldn't even tell that they were off basically. And then when you drove away from the FIDs, there was enough error that you could see that they were like 0.2 millimeters off. And I'm like, there it is. Mm. So. so in a situation like that, are you going to send the panels back or the boards back and be like, hey, you know, that's we need more what boards. we're going to be doing. Yeah, that, yeah. Like, that's what I would do in that situation. Yeah, send them back. Because 10 like, thou uh, is is pretty far uh, to be off. Most uh, Those are those are probably pretty clearly out of spec of the yes. uh, standard board manufacturing. Yeah. Because the pads have to be off, but also... The, were the like if you looked at the openings on the mask were the pads like clearly offset or was the mask openings off as well uh it, the the pcb itself looks fine mm. so the registration of the pcb is off mm. it's really weird which you wouldn't think would be possible but that's how it is that certainly does not happen very often no um i was talking to one of our our operation managers and he said he's seen it once in his entire career so yeah that and, I, and that, that that's the once in my career i guess <laughs> <laughs> well and, and you know that's that these are one of those things where it's like you don't expect to see it and these are those ones where it's like once you finally figure that out you're like okay well i guess that's reasonable to spend one two three days figuring out what the problem is yeah what the it's problem like, was you don't you don't really think of these kinds of problems as being a problem no because uh, you assume so it's going to be a good part especially since a lot of them were good kind of like what i was talking about last week with black pad where like i have to tell people at work when they're um diagnosing failed units they, they like there's a tendency now that we've had black pad be a thing at least once they're like oh well this board has the plague and it's like no go back keep searching like don't just like automatically assume this thing that's super super rare rare like is you have, the you have to eliminate the all the other things until you're like wow okay it actually is that one yes rare thing yeah you do put it into your your this, your your uh, root cause analysis tree, though. It's just the problem is it's at the very bottom. Yeah, it's like way in the back of your head as like, is it lupus? It I'm not sure. <laughs> it never <laughs> is until it is. Until the one time it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's the end. Close the chapter on that book right there. I, except you have to rebuild the boards. Now. Yeah, that's whatever. But, but close the bo close the chapter of engineering support yes you've washed your hands yep um got an update for project snacky which is the uh vending snack vending machine that i've been hacking um got the pcbs ordered from osh park got all the parts ordered from mauser it's great when you like design like you first of all i'm only building one of these boards right and so I, I basically made sure there was enough stock in the world so I would not have to worry about having to redesign this board later. Um, so there's enough parts in the world. Um, so I got parts ordered. So probably in about two weeks, I'll have a board made, assembled, nice. put together. Um, and then uh, I started looking for drop-in MOSFETs to replace the TIP-102 and 107 transistors. And uh, I have a whole bunch of IRL 510 
which are just like generic and channel logic level uh with a to220 package mm -hmm. um and then i was looking for a p i don't have a p channel like an irl 510 to my like back of my brain i'm like oh yeah that'd be a perfect part so i started looking for one i found the x ixtp76p1010 just a weird part number yeah it's made by like the ixt company which i never heard of either hmm. um but mauser's got some in stock so i ordered some M mosfets always seem to have like the craziest part numbers that are just like non you like you'd you're never going to memorize that. And it might have nothing to do with like any of the specifications of the part. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, the um, uh, doing really rapid design cycles like you've done with this board, like basically you knew you needed the board. And so you just like, like almost monster energy drink powered through the design. One weekend. And, <laughs> yeah, one weekend. <laughs> right now, and with the state of how manufacturing and electronics is that's sort of like the best way to do it because like you design you design knowing what is available and you just buy it right then so you're done yeah like, as i'm building parts i'm like adding them to my mauser cart <laughs> <laughs> yeah right like, you almost have to do that like okay so i i did a a design a little while back and i and, and um I hadn't ordered it yet. I did a bomb scrub not that long ago on it where I went line by line and I found all the parts that were out of stock because, of course, they were out of stock. And I found substitutes for it. And I made the mistake and I waited a few days. And I went oh. uh, and then I uploaded the bomb to Mauser to go buy it. Ten uh, lines were out of stock. And, uh, and we're not talking about like tons of semiconductors or anything like that we're talking about capacitors are out of stock yeah it's just, it's just like oh my god like so basically you have to be on your bomb every day like, yeah just making sure it's there. every single day yeah i mean jerry was talking about that we had jerry on um what two weeks ago something like that where he's like your <laughs> your bill of materials is valid for the next five minutes <laughs> yeah, if that <laughs> right right you just don't know yeah you don't know at all and then mm -hmm. um it's time to say goodbye to the Floppotron 2.0. Um, I remember watching this back in college. Well, maybe not this version, because I think this is Floppotron 2.0 is 2016 is when it came out. Yeah. But the original one, I think, was back in college. Um, but this is the, like, stack of floppy drives and hard drives and scanners that uh, this person has uh, turned into musical instruments, for lack of better words. Yeah, because the steppers um, inside the old floppies, their their frequency of operation fits really well within the audio range. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm I would be I haven't ever looked at Floppatron how it was designed. What I'd be really curious about is, did they just basically determine what values equated to what pitches or what tones, or did they actually run like? per floppy drive is there like a tuning algorithm where it would like because each one's going to have a slight tolerance in order to tune them all to each other do they run an algorithm that's like okay x pulse train equals this you know whatever to them um probably not i'm guessing they just i'm gonna guess not i bet you because they wanted some harmonics in there yeah so it doesn't all just sound like the same tone so there's slight yeah, variations yeah. in them. Yeah. Yeah. 
just to give it a little bit more character and flavor, they're slightly off from each other. What was it? Uh, warmth. <laughs> warmth. Yeah, there you go. I like that. <laughs> I, I I would have the tendency to like characterize each floppy drive. Yeah. Uh, so I knew that like if I sent the value of five sixty two to this drive, that meant a three or whatever. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would very much want like a lookup table for each drive, but. I bet you the tolerance is pretty minimal between each one, so they can probably just write the same code and send it to all of them and good enough, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, according to the comments, so we'll post a YouTube video uh, for, for the farewell tour of Floppotron 2.0, but apparently, according to the comments, Floppotron 3.0 is coming soon. Um, don't know when, though. I wonder if Floppotron 3.0 is made out of Floppotron 2.0, so like you have to say goodbye, you know. Could be the uh, the video for this. I, just... I have to admit, like Parker posted it before, and I watched it, and it was it's like actually sad to watch this video because like I remember Floppotron a while ago and listening to like Doom music and stuff like that on uh, on it, and uh, and then they play this like really like heart wrenching song on floppy drives. Yeah. It's like oh, and then they do like a montage of like. The life of Floppotron 2.0. It, it, it's very much like the hyper emotional music they play at like high school graduation, you know. <laughs> but it's a bunch of floppy drives. Ah, that's good. Yeah, no, I'm 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 excited to see Flop Floppotron 3.0. Because um, I wonder if it's just going to be like what what they had 128. Maybe I'm wrong on that number. Uh, floppy drives. I don't drives, know how many but, number. But I'm wondering if they're just going to have like. 500 or something ridiculous yeah i think you have to add like other instruments to it yeah zip drives zip drives there you go the zippotron i remember my father coming home from i don't know where he bought a zip drive but he bought a zip drive Fries and i remember him showing it to us and he's like this is the future of data storage right here the future <laughs> yeah because it was like 100 megs per Zip yeah. drive, right? Something like that, and uh, yeah, I, I was the only person I, 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 I think Parker's the only person I know who ha had a, a zip drive, yeah, or, I had a zip or drive. even knew about it. Basically, all my friends were like, "What's that?" I did not get mine at the bleeding edge when it came out, though. Um, I bought it at a garage sale. <laughs> 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 I think I paid a couple bucks, and I put it in my. Was it my second computer I built? I can't remember anymore. Yeah. And that, that was the funny thing. So I had one of my friends come over a couple weekends ago, and he was looking at my computer. Because I, I actually built my computer in a rack mount. So it's in a 4U rack mount case. And I have like a little rolly rack mount case I built around the time Macrofab started, actually. Um, and uh, I love it because it's... It's if I need to go take it somewhere, I just unplug everything in the back, four screws, pull it out, and it's already got handles on it. And uh, it's got great ventilation because it's just got big fans up front, big fans in the back, a um, lot of space inside for graphic card activities. Um, but the thing on it is, it's got two disk drives, and my friend was like, "Why do you have disk drives on your computer? Like, just in general." Yeah. One's a Blu-ray player, and I think the other one's a DVD player that's not even hooked up anymore. It's just taking up a slot, just so it's not an empty <laughs> hole. Right, right. <laughs> empty holes are just dust ingress holes. So yeah. 
you're, you're just using it to plug the hole. Yeah, plug the hole. Well, the problem is I need to really clean that computer because it's been in this garage now for four and a half, maybe five years. And I'm like looking at the front and I'm like, there's a pretty good layer of dust on the grill itself. And that's not even a filter. Mm, what's what's going to look like? It's, it's good. Ooh. Years ago, I had a, a, a computer similar to that. It was a 4U rack mount computer and it had removable grills and uh luckily like you could just take them to the sink and rinse them off oh, but like yeah oh my god they they picked up so much dust it was disgusting yeah well this fall i'm gonna try to build a computer barring the supply chain so this computer i'm probably going to turn into like a recording computer only oh. um, so it, it gets it will still get to live on but in retirement <laughs> light duty yeah, light dude. Well, actually, it's going to be heavy encoding. So, barring the supply chain, but apparently that stuff's getting better. Like, you can actually buy graphics cards and stuff now. Like a um, 3080 or, or. Well, the 4000 series comes out this fall, supposedly. Yeah, we'll see. So, yeah, we'll see. So, I was going to build a old new computer. I'm going to get a new 4U rack. So, I'm going to keep this 4U in it. I'm just going to. You know, take it apart, clean it, put it all back together. Yeah. And then uh, get a better capture card for it. And then, um, yeah, we'll run a uh, new computer. I, I don't know if I'm going to make a custom for you rack for it or not. I kind of want to get back into that and build something custom. Hmm. Like you send cut send and get like. Yeah, stuff like basically cut. get a for you chassis and then make my own front panel for it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Hmm, that's a good idea. Yeah, so that would some be pretty big easy. steel fr front plate. That'd be awesome. Yeah, with like a, instead of the grill, instead of like the grills, like being the honeycomb, it's like a big macrofab logo. Oh yeah, and then it just gets all dusty and nasty. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, put red fans behind it. Oh, uh, RGB that life. looks legit. <laughs> But yeah, the, the biggest thing with computers, I think, is all the USB ports on the front. Also in the back, I guess, too. But I just remember, like, when, like, my first motherboard that had a USB plug and it had two of them. Yep. But you still had to basically, you still had to have, uh, man, because I had a USB keyboard and mouse, too, eventually. And that actually ended up sucking because it would use both of the USB ports on that computer. And so For if USB I had a mouse. Yeah. Uh, why would he use both? The keyboard, it was USB as well. Oh, oh, I see what you get. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And so if I had a, had a flash drive, I had to unplug one and plug the flash drive in. <laughs> I, my, my laptop at work, it has uh, two USB ports on it. And uh, actually, I'm sorry, it has three, but one of the ports is is intended to connect to a dock. So it's like a Dell that has a dock on it. And then that dock has like eight USB ports on it. But if you ever disconnect, you got two. Uh, mm -hmm. And like two really does not get you very far. No. It's, yeah, it's a giant pain. Yeah, what I started doing is I make sure that I have like, I think there's like eight front USB ports on this computer. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have a hub that I basically like VHB taped to my desk up in front. That's just behind my computer, uh, my monitor. 
And so I can plug in. That's where, like, you know, if I don't care about speed, that's where stuff goes. Yeah. But if you need that super speed, plug in the front of your computer. Like, I do I do my wireless headphones on a USB hub. Like, that's plenty fast enough. Yeah. No. Yeah, so hopefully Floppotron 3.0 is as good as Floppotron 2.0. Looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. So there's uh there's one thing I wanted to cover today. Um we've we've talked about this a handful of times, but it's always worth mentioning again. And this is uh some information on preparing your boards for sending to your contract manufacturer. Now, there's a handful of different ways that um you can think about this depending on who you're going with. Like if you're going with Macrofab, a lot of this stuff is actually taken care of for you, but you still have to pay attention to it. Uh, but if you're going with like a, you know, a classic contract manufacturer where you just zip everything together and shoot it off in an email, uh, I guess a little bit more of the impetus is, is in your plate to get it right. Let's just put it that way. But uh, so before you, uh, you ship all your stuff off to your contract manufacturer. Um, there's just a few things I want to cover here of like, just keep this in mind. First of all, uh, part placement is kind of a big deal when it comes to your contract manufacturer. So, you know, when you're, when you're designing your board and you, you put your board outline down and you get to define like, okay, this is what my board looks like. That doesn't necessarily give you the agency to place parts anywhere on that board and get it made by anyone uh the reason i'm bringing that up is is if you're if you're placing parts like almost touching the edge of the board that automatically excludes your contract manufacturer from being able to uh put mouse bites or rails or uh holding tabs or things like that um onto that board and if you do that excessively all around the board it basically makes the board unmanufacturable uh is that a word well we're, we're not able to be manufactured let's just say it, put it that way and and so like uh keep in mind that like a little bit of a pullback on components not only is it a good just design concept uh or something to keep in mind because of you know flex and things like that can damage components that are near the edge of a board it helps your contract manufacturer and and as just a general rule of thumb say 20 25 30 thou of pullback from the edge of the board at a minimum would is is helpful if you if your design can handle that if your design can't handle that uh it helps to get in contact with your manufacturer and ask them hey you know what two sides of my boards uh would you prefer to put rails on or prefer to panelize on uh such that <clears throat> i maybe i can violate a little bit of those component edge uh, constraints uh, on two sides of my boards, but on the other two sides of my boards, I uh, I leave extra room for the manufacturer. Yep. For most boards, I like to see a hundred. Oh, a hundred is fantastic. A hundred is like your manufacturer can do anything yeah, at that yeah. point. Um, depending on the scale, of course, and how small a board, because you know, the smaller board that is just you don't have that space, right? Um, and uh, yeah, that that's the big thing is. You know, think about how you're going to hold this board to manufacture it. I actually that right there, I think is a really big thing that I see people miss a lot in terms of 
as a, as an engineer when you're designing a board a lot of times you just get stuck in this mindset of like here are my design constraints and you're not thinking about everyone else who has to touch that board and everyone else who has to manufacture that board like think about it as you're making that board like somebody has to actually put this in a machine somebody has to actually like physically do something to this to assemble it uh there has to be a way to actually like the machine grips onto it or it like slides on rails and uh, on top of that, uh, your contract manufacturer may modify your board slightly in order to fit within their design parameters and whatever paradigm their system requires. And so that might mean, you know, mouse bites or, or V scores or, you know, unique rails based off of what that manufacturer is doing. Giving them the ability to do that is critical. I mean, if, if you design a board with parts on all four edges you're not going to find a manufacturer they, they they will kick it back and say like we just can't do this go and adjust your design so it's it's helpful to to think about that up front let's just put it that way the, we we built the board like that though well um, okay let's just put it this way. like push comes it's not, to shove it was it not inexpensive happen. to do it though because we basically had to have oh it was we had to have an smt carrier per PCB basically, and so you had to do it one at a time in the pick and place, and that yeah like do when I slow. say when I say it's not manufacturable it's it's cost prohibitive let's just put yes it that cost way. prohibitive is a better term for it yeah yeah because like it can be done I mean like all you know push comes to shove you could hand build the board right yeah um, but then you're compromising a lot on quality or compromising on a lot of other things what are you talking about it's artisan. <laughs> bespoke <laughs> bespoke yeah bespoke boards <laughs> yeah which you know the stuff parker Boutique. and i do in our garage and basement is bespoke let's put it that way i do like how we use those terms that instant like part of it is like quality it's part of that diction mm. where it couldn't just not that's nothing part of it right as you're, as you're right is like if you were building boards by hand they're you're gonna have more errors than a machine mail building it for sure oh almost almost 100 percent guaranteed yeah um like a human being can be errorless for some period of time but not indefinite mm -hmm. a a machine will either build all of them the same way or none of them the right way that's a good way of putting it yeah <laughs> That's actually the hardest part about electronics is you have a bazillion things and they all have to be right. They all have to be right for it to work. It's yeah. it's interesting to think about how many different manufacturing processes go into just you assembling a board too. Like all the resistors, capacitors, microcontrollers, connectors, the, the fab itself, the PCB fab, building a stencil. The machines. Well, I guess that's everything now. We're talking about like creating the universe at this point. <laughs> right. The airplanes that ship the boards. To yeah, yeah. We're going too far now. <laughs> too far. <clears throat> okay, so one of the next things on prepping your board, uh, and I think that this is absolutely critical from the get-go. Like, just build this into your process from like the very first thing you do in your... Uh, EDA tools is leave rooms for your fiducials. If your board is going to be assembled on a pick and place machine or really any automated machines, it needs fiducials. 
Uh, if you don't know what a fiducial is or if you need like some standardized fiducials, Google it. It's really easy to find or contact your contract manufacturer and they can the probably little copper you, dots. With, yeah, basically with, copper dots with no mask, basically. Yeah. Um, um, but, but put those on for, your board to start with. What's it used for? Uh, well, for the uh, uh, for your machines to actually um, optically identify locations on the board. So when mm -hmm. when your board slides into the machine, the first thing the machine does is it goes and it finds those fiducials and those fidu it knows based off of your design files where those fiducials are and it can basically triangulate the fiducials you place down and then it has a coordinate system that it can base itself off of. It's effectively the way to find the origin of the board. Mm -hmm. I use, so when I am doing a new board design, uh, I'll throw a couple parts on the, I know that the, you know, in the schematic, I'll be like, okay, I'm using this microcontroller, these connectors, blah, 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 blah. Then I go immediately to the board and draw the outline that I'm thinking that the shape should be. I kind of mm -hmm. place the connectors and the parts where they should kind of be. That kind of makes sense. This is all takes experience, by the way. There's no hard and fast rules for this. No. It's just experience building boards over time. Um, but... The next thing I do is I put mounting holes and fiducials next. Before I do anything else on the schematic, mounting holes, fiducials, and then I'll go, okay, now let's finish the schematic up and make sure, oh, now everything fits in that design. Sometimes I'll pick an enclosure early on too, mm. and they'll have like a reference PCB size that can go in there. And then I'll like, you know, draw that out. Um, and that will have where all your mounting holes go. But then, yeah, fiducials. Before you even finish your schematic, fiducials. That way you don't forget. That way you don't forget, and at the same time, if your fiducials are down, all of your other components conform to the fiducials, not, oh, I forgot, now I have to find places for the yeah, fiducials. Find, yeah. yeah, find places. And with your fiducials, okay, let's just pretend like you have a rectangular board. Pick three of the corners. Uh, it, 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 honestly, it's best if you can have a fiducial in all four corners. That way it uh, the operator can choose if they do three or two or four fiducial checks on the machine, but um, put them as far out as possible. The, the, the farther extent of the fiducials, the better. Because uh, uh, if you have, you know, three fiducials and they're all centered at the middle, the, the center of the board, your error, you know, increases as you uh, go further out. Uh, so if you can place your fiducials at the furthest extent of the board, you get the, the best data there. Mm -hmm. And uh, rem another thing, this is simple, but remember this. If you have two-side assembly, you need fiducials on both sides of the board, not just one side. Uh, okay, so one other thing that I actually... I get this pretty pretty regularly, actually. Um, provide a stack-up for your board. Now, I'm, I'm, MacFab takes care of this automatically, and I've seen some other online um, quoting uh, services that, that take care of this, but... Once again, if you're doing the old school way of just like contract, uh, you know, contacting your mm -hmm. manufacturer, provide a stack up for mainly this applies to boards that are over two layers because most of the time two layer boards are really obvious what the stack yeah. up is. But for a four layer board, if you just provide two internal layers and you don't say which one is which, we don't know which way they go and we don't want to order it incorrectly because maybe just maybe the, the stack up actually matters for your design so and basically you might think it doesn't if you do let's say you're doing fc let's say you get your product built 
and you got FCC certification, and then your CM swapped those two layers around, and now you're not in compliance anymore, but you don't know. Right. Right. So I would actually say it always matters. It always matters. Always uh, so specify it, even if it's like going with a generic one, because uh, the macro platform has like eight different generic ones that you can pick. Just pick a generic one. If it, you you say I don't care, well then just pick one, because then because if it doesn't matter to you, because like for impedance control or anything like that, just pick one because that way it's always the same every single time. Right, and and it starts to matter a lot more with high speed stuff, with high density stuff, and with high layer count stuff. You know, if you're doing anything over four layers, it's it's absolutely critical. Uh, so just provide a stack up and a stack up uh, for those who who don't know there's not like a uh, when I say provide a stack up that's not like a fixed standardized thing it could be a text file that says here's my top layer here's my next layer you know it could be an image that's, that shows like a cutaway of my board or what however you want to do it as long as you just communicate what it is and we have it in uh, in record such that every time we order it we can order it the same way I think that's, exactly. That's critical. And uh, the MacFab platform takes care of that basically for you. Mm -hmm. Like when you upload your files, you get to choose which layers. Yeah, you can choose some standards and then uh, then or put in a custom one if you have that. Well, and yeah, actually and you, matters. You, you choose their arrangement basically. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, that actually kind of leads into the next thing because I've run into some issues with this uh, file naming. Now, you may have everything right, like you have your stack up, maybe even have a fab drawing, you've, do, you've done everything really well, and then you provide this zip file where every file is called board.gerber. And it's just like 10 files that have different, you know, size, and they're just board.gerber. Like, at least have some kind of naming scheme such that we don't have to ask or we don't have to figure it out. Because I've, I've actually had some customers where I've had to bring it into a Gerber viewer, figure out what layer it is, and then rename it so I knew what it was. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, well, okay, I shouldn't say unfortunately. There are some standards out there, but they're not so standardized that everyone uses them. Yeah, what's the one that, is it Proton? Uh, no, uh, uh, Protel, right? Protel. Which yeah, is kind of like the Protel came out with some extensions, yeah. uh, file extensions for Gerber's, like .gtl, .gbl, et cetera, et cetera, a long, long, long time ago, probably before Steve and I were born. And that's kind of what the industry, I say standardized on. It's not a standard, though. Um, the best thing you can do is provide all your Gerber's or files, and then a file that ha lists them all and tells you what they are if you want to be really extra combine that file and your stack up into one and your stack up yeah that was actually so, what we do that's perfect <laughs> when we build all the manufacturing data to send to the pcb fab um our stack up includes the file name that that layer is supposed to be yeah yeah and that makes life a gazillion times easier for us. And and that the, that file extension that Parker's talking about the Protel stuff, um, I think that's a really great way to begin. Like I think even the Macrofab website has uh, some some information about it. But basically, by looking at the file extension, you can just tell what it is. Like GBL is Gerber bottom layer, GTL is Gerber top layer, uh, and and just by 
uh, those, those three letters, you can glean what the entire thing is. It also helps like when, you know, you bring it into your Gerber viewer, it's easy to arrange them mm-hmm. uh, quickly or whoever's looking at your Gerber. So our, uh, the Gerber viewer that we, we are using, um, you can give it filters. And so if it, if it understands like the extension, it will automatically associate that with like top copper. Right. That's super nice. You guys got the fancy stuff. Eh, it's okay. <clears throat> I'm currently, I'm currently test driving like four or five different other tools right now. The, Kind of, kind of replace what we're currently using. Oh, nice! So, um, uh, so, so, real quick, one other uh, thing left to to kind of close this all up with prepping your boards. Uh, I, and 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 this one is it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but I think it, it's it's also really helpful. Is do not provide every single layer that your EDA tool spits out. So, in other words, what like, the five blank. Uh, note fields or note gerbers <laughs> should not be included. All of your assembly layers, all your mechanical layers, all of your like extra note fields or whatever. Like, if those are set to automatically export, go in and change your cam data such that those don't automatically export. Well, uh, they if they have data in it. Yes, it should go with your package. But if they're blank. Uh, you know, I, I would I would say I would argue a little bit to say if they have data that your contract manufacturer needs, then send it. If they okay, just have okay. your notes that are just like, you know, pointing at something on your board saying this is this. Like, yeah, because when I that. yeah when I get a blank like I get a Gerber and I open up and it's blank, I'm like, is this really blank? I don't see the yeah. And then you go open up a text editor, and go okay, yeah, it's actually blank. Or, right, and that's like a ton of extra work and potentially leads to extra questions and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Was this just, just intentionally provide the files you need. <clears throat> right, right. Yeah. Like, do we need something in this? Yeah. Is there something special about this? It's like uh, when you scroll through a data sheet and you see that this page intentionally left blank. And it's like, then why is this page here? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that would, that would probably clear things up if it was like this Gerber is intentionally left blank. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so all of those things combined really help you, uh, be successful with your contract manufacturer and just actually this, this right here, if you just follow these kind of these ideas that I just presented, will probably prevent the first one or two rounds of questions that get kicked back from the contract manufacturer. Because if I see all this stuff, I'm going to ask, even if I see a blank Gerber layer, especially if it just has an extension like .gbr or something like that, just Gerber. I'm going to yeah. ask questions because I don't want to build it wrong because then it would be my fault, right? So, uh, yeah, just just look out for these things. Uh, they'll make uh, ordering a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Or use Macrofab's platform because it's a lot easier and it takes care of like <laughs> 99% of this. <laughs> And with that, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy. Later, everyone.
Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. It is MacFab.com slash Slack. The invite is always open. Uh, and also the live stream, which is twitch.tv slash MacFab, which is at 6 o'clock Central Time on Tuesdays.